0: roasters who start up uh, and wanting to buy quality coffee don't realize that price and quality is related yeah. so we're on a cupping event now where there's a lot of buyers Yeah. and if i'm pretty sure if we ask every single person here they want the best possible coffee but they want to pay as little as possible yeah, sure. as long as it's fair for the farmer yeah. yeah. but uh, what's fair for the farmer i mean you're
1: we're not even talking with the farmer about it. Welcome to or welcome back to Coffee with April. My name is Patrick Rolf, and this is a conversation with some amazing professionals and entrepreneurs in the coffee industry sharing their perspective and experience. It's about integrity, quality, and the future. This conversation is with Tim Venebo. He needs no further introduction. He's arguably one of the best roasters in the world, and it was an absolute pleasure to meet up with him at his new roastery in Oslo. So um, we're sitting um in Oslo, where we're basically in the Tim Van roastery. We're actually upstairs at Nordic Approach to be specific and would like to be specific. I have Mr. Tim sitting in front of me. Um I reckon this is gonna be a very interesting conversation. Um we're gonna talk about a lot of different things, mainly because you have done a lot of different things. Yes. Um but I don't want to start from the beginning. I want to start uh, by talking a bit about the beautiful new roastery space. Um, You moving over to a Loring road system? Yes. Uh, How has that you know? How's the last few months been at Timenimo?
0: Very hectic. So uh, we were supposed to open a year ago uh, in the new space, and then we didn't get the permits uh, that we were kind of relying on getting in time. So uh, it was delayed, and then um, uh, once the work started in the building, because we're in a new or in an old building that uh, Nordic Approach has totally redone uh, because it needed a lot of renovation so we also had to wait for their work to be done but um, so since uh, kind of November I've been working more as a carpenter and uh, 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 what do you call it a janitor to make the space uh, work and uh, we were done enough to start uh, testing in January actually Mm -hmm. uh, on the 23rd of December I was here until I think ten o'clock at night, yeah, to make sure the roaster actually worked. Yeah, and then it worked. And the plan was to do some testing, a couple of days after Christmas. But um, I did, I needed a vacation. Yeah, yeah, no, I heard of course. So we started testing in uh, January, uh, along with also you know finishing the space building. Yeah. Uh, ben and I did a lot of testing. I think we roasted probably five, six hundred kilos of coffee. Yeah, probably even more. Um, that we sold you know for a cheap price to our customers yeah. uh, and then you know cut the coffees next to the probat samples and so on and once we kind of were happy with the um, profiles you, you will never be happy you know mm. but mm. 90% happy mm. um, then we decided okay on the 14th of February I think we closed down the store yeah. because we also needed to take out the old roaster so we already sold yeah, that actually. roaster to Fülen, yeah. and they've been waiting for that for a year so um, then we, we 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 just overnight uh, started roasting everything on the loring instead of like doing a little bit on the Probat and a little bit yeah. on the loring so we had that pressure on us to you know there's no room for failure yeah we don't want to have to return coffees from all over the world yeah and send them new coffees if they're not happy so we had that pressure and that was actually nice because then you have to make some uh, compromise of course yeah. but also you have to be a little bit more clever about your decisions. Sure. Whether nitty-gritty details are important or not in terms of flavor profiles and so yeah. on. So uh, we are actually now been producing since 14th of February, so about one and a half months. Yeah. Uh, and we're super happy. Like, it's a totally new day f- uh, life for us because we can now roast uh, over 70% more Yeah. per batch. Yeah. We're roasting 30 kilo batches at the moment and we used to do 12. Yeah, yeah for and, sure. And uh, so now, you know, we have a new bottleneck which is packing. Yeah. Um, before it used to be the roasting. But uh, also we have less f- missed roasts. Yeah. Uh, it's easier for us to follow,
1: e- easier to follow the curves. So it's a more consistent roasting system in, in, in general, yeah. I would say. Right? Much that, sure. you, you obviously roasted really tasty coffee on, on a pro bed for some years as well. So you can do good yeah. coffee there as well
0: that's what I thought at least
1: <laughs> you know, that's how it is you 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 know you. Uh, we all get new gears we learn new things uh, and something that I've been really fascinated about uh, when it comes to you guys in general and maybe you as a person is that and you know I've been trying your coffees now uh, I've basically subscribed to your coffees and I know Ben sent me samples at one time as well and I don't want to say I get frustrated but You basically completely change your roasting system and the problem lowering that's night and day, right? They they're not comparable in that sense, right? Still you're you're managed to put out some of the best tasting coffee out there in a relatively short amount of time, right? And I think part of that is like what I see when I look at Timendibo is a company that you do things very properly. In that sense, you spend a lot of time doing things, both from, you know, you don't just buy a farm and don't spend any time there and go and cup once a year, you actually learn about agriculture. Um, you get a lowering and, and if I understand it correctly, you have been test hosting for quite some while in, yeah. in different industries as well, which yeah. is like, there's is a is very, very genuine process behind what you're doing and those kind of steps. Is that something that you always have done? Well, I guess, uh, yeah, I don't like to do
0: stuff halfway. Like, yeah. I don't get any joy. Yeah. Is it recording? Yeah, it should be. <laughs> <I> <laughs> <just> <laughs> <gonna> <laughs> double check that. Now it's recording. No, I, I don't enjoy doing stuff halfway. Uh, I don't like to be bad at stuff. That's yeah. why I don't play an instrument anymore. Okay. I didn't have the patience <laughs> to practice enough, you know. Okay. Um... Uh, you know I'm but you have, to, to be fair you had patience with coffee right? yeah but it's a different thing when it's your living yeah. uh, <laughs> sure. it's not just a hobby yeah. uh, although it kind of is a hobby as well but uh, yeah. um, I I just uh, don't like uh, I don't like to drink coffee uh, to be honest I like to drink delicious coffee Yeah. but I don't like to just drink coffee yeah. just for the sake of it so sure. if I don't like my own coffee then you know I get very frustrated and um just to take an example, when I, when I started going to farms, you know, I didn't really know anything about how quality is produced at all. Mm. I was just visiting many farms and, you yeah. know, seeing different systems and mm. practices. And over time, when you kind of get, uh, or when you start tasting the coffees from the farms you've been visiting and you start to see correlations between production techniques, quality and so on... Mm. Um, it's really hard not to try to implement that yeah. with the producers that you're working with. Yeah. So um, and also, um, I never I'm never really happy with a cup of coffee. I because I know it can be better. It yeah. can be sweeter. The roast can be better. The brewing yeah. can be better. The producing can be better. Yeah. But um, so I think you know, in terms of buying a roasting machine, it's quite a big investment. Yeah. Um, we had a roaster that we just bought uh, cheap uh, because back then they were cheap in the market Yeah, I actually sold it for a lot more than I bought it for like a um, and uh, there weren't that many kind of new inventions in the roasting machines back in 2007 when, or 6 when I considered buying one yeah. but uh, then when we started looking for a new roaster the Loring had entered the market um, probat had changed their systems mm. and so on but I had uh, kind of worked on the loring a little bit every now and then. And, yeah. You know, for me, it just, it just makes so much more sense. The fact that it's cleaning the air. Yeah. We're using actually less gas now than we yeah. used to. Yeah, sure. Um, and uh, the fact that it's actually made to be maintained and cleaned and, you mm. know, it's just a totally different, totally different way of thinking. Uh, so for me, it was natural to, to buy loring, but because it's so different from the probats and, um, because I have a name and reputation mm. and a, a lot of loyal customers mm. um, that will tell me if they're not happy with the yeah, coffee, of course. Yeah. then I have to make sure that at least we are at the same level of standard. Yeah. And I know we can improve from here because mm. we've only worked with the roster for a month. Yeah, of course. yeah. But, um, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't like to screw people over. I don't like to get screwed over myself. Yeah, fair enough. So if you go to a bakery, for instance, and buy a product... And you're not happy with that one product that you bought. Mm-hmm. What's the chance of me returning there? It's it's zero actually. Yeah, yeah sure. I don't want to go back. Sure. Right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, you have to make sure the products are good. This, yep. I mean, this is my living. So. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. And it's you know it's a very simple. It's a simple process. You know, treat people the way you want to be treated as well. Yeah. Uh, but what have you guys done still? It's it's for me. It's because I, I made that transition as well. I made it twice. From from Loring to Didush, from Didush to Loring. Um, and then personally, I don't feel that I had any clue about the luring system until the second time I was on it. Yeah. Um, how did you guys actually pull it off? Like, are you guys working with any kind of like color tracking or any kind of gear to help that, or was it? Like, <laughs> where did the theory from the curve come from? Was it a bunch of test posting beforehand, or what is the process? See, so that's the thing. <clears throat> we don't really work with theories. Yeah.
0: Okay. We don't really overthink the processes. Fair enough. Um, we have a color track so we, we are, I've always worked with uh, some kind of color measurements. yeah okay. uh, when I was roasting at Solberg and Hansen back in the days I was using the Colorette and Agatron yeah and uh, now I switched to the color track many years ago but okay. I started with the Colorette yeah because for me it, it's kind of like taking the temperature when you're still eating meat or yeah. you know measuring the speed when you're driving a car then I, then I know the roast degree at least yeah uh, and I learned that uh, especially with the probat if you take or dump the coffee out on the same temperature from curve to curve mm. the color can be quite different very different depending on the coffee yeah. Sure. Yeah. so we've learned to roast with that and kind of uh, know how to compensate for that when the curve is not fitting on a probat at least mm. but uh, with the loring because of experiences that I've done or tasting loring roasts from other people mm. And measuring color. Mm. I tend to measure color when I just get a bag to taste. I always measure the color just to know where it is. And in my experience, uh, all the best loring roasts that I've had on coffees that are similar to ours uh, have always been lighter in color, yeah. but felt more developed. Yeah, yeah. Um, So we knew that that was possible. Mm. So we actually more or less set a range, a target range where we wanted to be, mm. we thought. So instead of our normal range is between let's say color track uh, 48 and 49 so yep. a very narrow window Yeah. this time we set it to you know 45 to 50 yep. just to see where we could be yeah, yeah, of course. Um, and then we just tested many different ways of approaching uh, the profile so you know some profiles had a lot of energy in the beginning yep. less at the end yep. some were opposite yep. you know and uh, we just basically just played around with it we had some because we've seen other people roast on the we had some idea of you know the total time that mm. were probably where we wanted to be yeah um and then we kind of cut that next to the probat roast we did of the same coffees which we have you know we've done probably done twenty thousand batches on the yeah, probat, yeah, yeah. so we have sure. some experience with that yeah. um and then uh yeah we basically just selected the best profile based on taste mm. and uh not just tasting it once, mm. we we were saving samples from each round of testing and comparing mm. it with the new ones um, and then landed on something. The The kind of a dumb thing with it was uh, not dumb, but you know, we tested on 15 kilo batches, mm. but we wanted to produce 30 kilo batches. Yeah. yeah, but you know, we didn't want to throw away or we didn't no, have want fact. to waste too much coffee. Yeah, for sure, for sure. So the challenge was then when we were really happy with the 15 kilo batch. Yeah to transfer it to 30, which, you know, isn't... You can't just follow the same curve. Uh, it's a totally different momentum. and uh, Lauren would say you could. but yeah, uh, no, I, yeah, no, I... I don't agree with that either. No, uh, we haven't been able to, but I think the trap we'll fall into now is to, that we're roasting a little bit too quick. Okay. So uh, we're, we have to stretch the roast out a little bit more than we're doing on the 30 kilos. Mm. Uh, I think our total roasting times now because people are going to want to know that, is
1: between 8 minutes 30 and 10 minutes depending on the coffee okay. yeah. for 30 kilos yeah. Yeah. And, uh, which is which is pretty cool that's part of why I think loring is very interesting as well is that it's one of the few machines you can actually pack up pretty good in terms of percentage of, of capacity yeah. and still roast within a flexible range of, of total time right? Yeah. so that's a, really, uh, that's a really good advantage with having the system
0: yeah I mean our old probat Also, it's powerful, but if we had 15 kilos in that 15 kilo roaster, it would basically mean 100% flame all the time. Yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, Zero flexibility. Yeah. But here, we're uh, currently at 90% flame on the um, 30
1: kilo batch, Mm. and still it's a little too quick. Mm. So, uh, Mm. we can easily do 35, I think. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. That's great. Uh, Still on the subject of roasting, but a bit of a bigger picture, because you guys have been roasting coffee for a very long time. Oh, not really. No, ten much. years. <laughs> ten, ten, okay, so yeah. ten years. But in the you know in the, in the contrast of we have a a million new groceries from all over yeah. the world, right? So in that spectrum, you guys are one of the more kind of established ones in terms of time, right? I believe I tried your coffees um, very frequently at least the last uh, seven years, more or less. But well, since I started in coffee, there's been there's been a process. So when I live in Gothenburg, I would take the bus up over the weekends and get like a coffee and. Uh, when in Berlin, everyone always get the coffee down. And I always evaluate uh, roasters' quality based on their low level. I think that's how you should do it. We all have, you know, ups and downs. Peaks are somehow easier than to have a, a high-low level. And you guys, I think, arguably has the highest low level in the industry. There's no, There's no one that is even close, I think. And you guys do that, where at the same time, you guys actually change the person roasting Mm. over that 10 years as well, which is normally when there's a change of person, you get a kind of a big change in quality as well. (laughs) But you guys have maintained that over those 10 years, right? How in in the world did you manage (laughs) to do that? That's
0: very easy to answer. Um, I think we've had, uh, just from the top of my head, probably somewhere between 10 and 20 different persons roasting. Mm. Some of them shorter time, some longer, you know, we always try to have at least two people that can roast, but yeah preferably three, yeah uh, three would be including myself,, yeah. but uh, probably in the future we'll have three separate persons, yeah so i'm uh, I mean my whole organization, the coffee bar and the roaster and everything, is organized so that no one should have to be missing in order or. Uh, let me say it in another way: we don't depend on one person yeah. f- to make stuff work. Sure. So we try to have very rigid systems and routines that you can follow, so that you can do the same quality work. Yeah. Whether it's uh, making an error press or you know checking payments from invoices, or mm. it should be easy for everyone to do. Mm. Of course, now that we've grown a little bit since we started, um, it's not uh, anymore that we can have every. Person knowing how to do everything, sure. Which was in the beginning, yeah. So now we have you know designated people, but we always make sure that there's at least two people who knows how to do yeah. one task. Yeah. Uh, but in terms of maintaining uh, the quality, it's very very easy because uh, I do the quality control. Yeah. So I'm the same person doing it all the time. Yeah, sure. Uh, and of course, I train my rosters to do it with me. So yeah. now we, it's usually for the last two years, it's only been me and Ben doing it mm-hmm. with. You know, Eric, who used to roast for us last year, and Marit, who started uh, last year when he left, they're also occasionally joining the companies. Yeah. Now we're actually, I'm actually taking the time to also train Marit to do it, so we're three people who can do it, because I travel a lot. Yeah, sure. But the thing is that uh, it's my name on the bag. It has yeah. to be my flavor preference that's reflected. Yeah, sure. That's, so exactly. that's why I, I do the buying, yeah. uh, so I buy the coffee that I like. Yeah. And I set the kind of, I had the last saying on how we
1: set the profiles. Mm, mm. But I think that's a, that's a, that's a very unusual thing to some extent because from from what I see with other roasters is that at least over ten years time, what happens is that the the founder or the owner of that company is 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 not going to do quality control every week, <laughs> right? To yeah. be honest, right? And I think we we see that we taste that very clearly, right? Because I know a lot of other roasters that have been through a similar journey in terms of, you know, getting new staff and, you know, the coffee is not, you you can put your coffee on the table along, you know, 20 other roasteries and you would pick out the Tim coffee. Mm. I think most people in this industry would be able to do that because there's an identity to the taste of the coffee that then seemingly seems to, you know, stay on even when you just change roaster, which is crazy in itself, right? But. It's, it's a very, for me, that's a very interesting process and it translates to the coffee shop as well. I've been there three times now in two days, uh, mornings and evenings um, and had the, uh, I think, as Espresso mm. if I remember correctly and um, the Geisha uh, as filter. And over these six years I've been visiting the shop as well. Like it's it's, it's remarkable how high the average standard of what you serve is in that shop. and again with several different people, right? Yeah. And sure, you can you can have routines and you can have processes, but in in a bar, it's also about taste, right? Mm. Because some days those routines are not not perfectly or, or that recipe doesn't work exactly, right? And how how are you able to um, to to actually make that happen and in two completely different businesses as well, right? So, <laughs> a coffee shop and a restaurant. I think the
0: key is to make things simple. Uh, A good example is a coffee shop that I visited in uh, Berlin, actually. And they were offering, uh, I think it was five different coffees Mm. and like six different brew methods. Mm. And, you know, as a customer, I don't have a clue of what combination of that would be great. And then uh, in that bar, they had the routine that uh, barista of the day would calibrate all of these. I mean, that's impossible. That is impossible. So, that's why we only brew on AeroPress, for instance. Yeah. Uh, we, have, we try to train them to do exactly the same thing yeah. in terms of brewing. Yeah. And the only thing we change is the grind setting. Yeah. And then we check that weekly with refractometers and stuff that it's within the extraction range we want. But, you know, I know that our AeroPress brews are not super consistent. Yeah. Okay. They will vary. Yeah. But um, because it's a very quick recipe... Yeah. Uh, you will still have a nice cup of coffee, yeah. because you won't extract, or it's impossible to overextract, mm. yeah. uh, But you'll hit you know, a window that is yeah. acceptable for most people. Yeah. It? A, same with espresso, we try to make it very, very simple to make espresso, so they only have to relate to adjusting the grinder and tasting the espresso, and
1: that's it. Yeah. So is it, is it fair to say that you're, focus, you're focus, basically focus, focusing a lot on the low level, right? You're making sure that whatever you do will never be bad Yeah. and then you, you realize that it will still have different degrees of good in that situation. you can always make a cup better Yeah.
0: but uh, at one point you have to say okay this is tasting good yeah. this is servable yeah. this is what we want to I will never serve we try not to serve anything bad and that's I think the difference between uh, even in restaurants a great restaurant uh, will always make bad food but yeah. they choose not to serve it Exactly. Sure. so uh, you have to kind of uh uh, we have a system that is very strict, so it doesn't leave a lot of room for you know fooling around as a barista and you know experimenting. Mm-hmm. At least not in the bar. Mm-hmm. But uh, we empower them to make the decision whether it's servable
1: or not, mm-hmm. and uh, you know to uh,
0: focus on what's important, which is the customer experience. Yeah,
1: of is that a, a conscious decision when you employ staff as well? Like, are you looking for a certain type of person? Because we all know that there's there's you know a lot of very Geeky baristas out there that wants to jump on and they want to you know try these thousand recipes on your guests, uh, not in the back room or maybe they should try it. Yeah, is that something that you you um, do you think a lot about who you're hiring? How how easy is it for you to find people that you want to work with? Yeah yes, so I've been hiring for almost twenty
0: years. Yeah, baristas. Uh, yeah, and um, I don't want rockstar baristas. Yeah, I don't need it. Yeah. Uh, and the, f- the first thing that uh, I always kind of am not interested in is the application where it says, you know, I'm a brista, blah, blah, blah. I'd like to learn more. Of course, everyone wants to learn more. Sure. And then I'd like to start traveling and more to Origins. Like, okay, but who's going to be home and work then? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, then you're applying for the wrong job. Yeah. So I'm actually looking for people that m- have some experience. Yeah. It might not be in coffee, but in can be in restaurants or wine or cafe or some kind of service uh, service uh, work and then um, we basically have interviews first I have an interview and then Stephanie my bar manager has the second interview and uh, we kind of pick the people who who seem a little bit more humble but also eager to learn and Mm. are kind of you know you, you sense a kind of a person that's you know would work well in your group but mm. also with your customers mm. uh, and having uh, some experience previous experience with baristas that I think they are all that that doesn't work in our bar mm. Mm. it's nothing wrong with being a rockstar barista at all yeah. it's just not the type of person that we can uh, include in our team to be able to or to have our team work Yeah, sure, sure. so um it's not that, like that I'm afraid that another person will take over all the glory in my no, company. No, no, no. You know, I don't care. Yeah. But it's it's a matter of everyone needs to follow the system for, yeah, in order to make the shop work. Yeah, And that's the same with the roasting. Um, I remember hiring Ben, who's been with me now for maybe three years yeah. or four. I don't remember. But he was roasting me at Fugl in Tokyo. On okay. A very different ProBat machine, more yeah. new style machine. So when he started, I, I gave him a task, I gave him, I think it was a nasi mental coffee and I, that we were supposed to start roasting. I yeah. said, you know, go crazy, make yeah. some profiles and then we'll taste it and see. And uh, he had read a book about roasting recently nice. and uh, that, you know, was talking about greater rise curves and so on. Yeah, yeah. So he was very focused on that. Yeah. And... Uh, we cut the coffees and they were all tasting really green mm. and uh, I looked at the profile and I said well it's because you did this mm. uh, and we tried that you know mm. two years mm. and it didn't work for us mm. uh, but um, then he kind of uh, instead of having that uh, attitude like well you know it's supposed to be like this because I read it and learned it he just approached it we were a much more humble thing and said okay let's try it differently and that's the kind of people I want. Like, yeah. we, we think we're all experts, including okay. myself. Sure. But uh, as I'm always corrected. Every day I'm corrected. Mm. You know? mm. So uh, I think you need to just be be willing to to work hard to make the system work and then we can fool around and play, you know, on the side, but
1: not while we're working. Mm. We need to, you know, make sure that the quality is there. Yeah, not experiment sure. with yeah. our customers. Yeah. No, I think I mean that, that's an important... A difference because I would argue that most, uh, especially coffee shops, would do that, We even roasters to some extent as well. Um, a bit shifting gear here, but, but also along the side, because correct me if I'm wrong, but a, a big part of, of your personal coffee career have been the the, the championships you won yeah. initially, <laughs> right? Yeah. Uh, at the same time, I, I don't see Tim um, competing so much these days as a company. Mm-hmm. I might be wrong there as well, uh, but how, like, because Basically, all of the people on this podcast, which is pretty funny, like they they're relatively successful, have a high amount of integrity, have a clear vision, and they all competed. Yeah. Right. Uh, most of them a lot of years ago, not so much now. But how was how was that process? How did you end up uh, competing? Was that important to you? Was that something you were really <laughs> excited about, or was it just you know I just randomly ended up competing? I was forced. <laughs> you were forced. I don't know. That's usually the best way. Of it.
0: No, this is, a. I mean, this is many, many years ago. My yeah. world championship win was uh, 14 years ago, yeah. so I don't really relate to that anymore. Yeah, sure. But um, when I started working in coffee, which was in 98, uh, the year later, or in 99, um, Solvig Hansen, who owned the coffee shops that I worked for, yeah, they were organizing together with SEAE, ESKA Norway, we called it, Yeah. the second Norwegian barista competition. Okay. And um, my boss was one of the marketing guys, so uh, he said, "You know, Tim, I just signed you up for this competition. It's fun. Yeah. Just show up. You yeah. know, make something nice, and then I'm sure you'll do well." Yeah. Uh, you know, and I came and and I did terrible. I didn't even qualify. I think, or I, if it, if I did, I didn't really do well in the second round. Yeah. But the feedback that I got was fantastic. You yeah. know, the judges that were there just said you know we really liked your uh, signature drink and thought you were awesome and you yeah. know you should really compete the next year so I didn't compete next year and then I came second yeah. this was in 2000 and that was the year when the same competition was taken to the world stage okay. in Monaco so we had the first world championship yeah. and the Norwegian champion Rupert Tudelsen he won the world championship Okay. Yeah. and I was able to go to Monaco and see him compete you know yeah, yeah. and he had just beaten me you know whatever points yeah. and uh, since I was a young arrogant guy I thought you know I'm, I can be as good as hit this guy sure. yeah, and win yeah. the world championship yeah. so that really motivated me and then I did 2001 in Miami thought I was the bomb and the best yeah. because the, of course the competition started in Norway yeah, yeah. Yeah. so we had like an advantage and then I didn't win I yeah. uh, came second but I was pretty happy with that mm-hmm. uh, had a Break, I think? No, I competed in 2002, yeah, in Norway. Yeah. And then I really thought I would win, you know, because yeah. there was no birthday in the world that was better than me. Yeah, and then yeah. I came second again. Yeah, okay. uh, and then I was really pissed off, didn't uh, really understand why I didn't win. And uh, after watching a video of myself competing, I was very easy to see why I didn't win. Because okay, I was an arrogant prick, yeah. and also my coffee was terrible. Okay. Um, <laughs> Like, the beans were terrible. Yep. And uh, nobody told me that until I talked to the international judges. Yeah. Well, was that the, the blend?
1: Or was that the year after? No.
0: So, in 2002, I competed with a blend called Half and Half from Solberg Nansen. Yeah. Which, back then, not now. Yeah. Because now it's a totally different coffee. Yeah, it back then, included Pascrop Brazilian Santos. I mean, they don't even grow coffee mm. in Santos. Uh, triage Malabar, so broken Malabar Classic. beans. Monsoon Malabar, yeah. Capu Royale uh, Robusta, yeah. and uh, probably some other leftovers you know, okay. from the storage. Yeah, <laughs> it was terrible. Yeah. Um, so then I took a year off to uh, kind of re-motivate myself. I went to Italy with my best friend and also the guy that was running Stockfist together with me then, Alex. Yeah. He's now a green buyer at Solberg & mm. So we went to Italy to learn a little bit about roasting, uh, see how they blended and roasted coffee in Italy. Mm. We visited many roasteries and importers. And uh, then I started just kind of making my own blend. So I uh, worked on that, roasting and cupping. And you know, they didn't even allow me to do it at oh, okay. But uh, Morton from Nordic Approach now, he had just started and my old mentor really mm. just said, you know, just do it. and yeah. then we'll, we'll take the discussion later. Yep. Um, and then uh, I had a barista that worked for me that competed in Boston in 2003. And I think he came third place with the coffee that I roasted okay. and the blend, mm-hmm. which back then contained some Robusta and, you know, whatever. Um, and then in 2004, I really worked on my routine and, Made my own blend. I had yeah. a single origin Australian coffee, believe it or not, in my signature that's drink. That's amazing. Yeah. So that's how I kind of, uh, that, that was my motivation, was that I thought I was great. And yeah. then in 2002, I realized, you know, I, I don't know shit. And yeah. especially with customer service, I yeah. learned a lot from being a prick yeah. and getting
1: that uh, brutal feedback yeah. from the judges. Yeah. Um, how, did, how did your your motivation change then? like, what, what was your main motivation after that then?
0: No, like, uh, when I won in 2004, I felt like I'm done with this, you know, it was yeah. kind of, I knew it was my last time competing, yeah. but I wanted to reach, you know, the first place. Yeah, sure. And when I did, I felt like, you know, yeah. it felt like um, probably if you're a student and you study to become a doctor and mm-hmm. then you get the degree, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. now I can start working. Yeah, you know? sure. yeah. So that's what it felt like for me, and then uh, uh, by chance uh, I was going to Athens the year after for an SAE exhibition, yeah. and they had the cup tasting championship, yeah, yeah. there was no other Norwegians there, uh, so Alf Kramer was organizing the championship, yeah. so, Tim, you're competing for Norway, Oh yeah. I came late to the competition because I'd forgotten to adjust my watch, yeah. but you know, the Greeks were also quite late with the sure. organization of it. <laughs> And then, uh, you know, with no uh, clue about how that competition even worked, mm. I managed to win that. Mm. And that was because I'd been cupping and roasting for almost two years intensively. Yeah, yeah sure. And without realizing, I trained myself how to learn how to cup. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I wouldn't say I was a good cupper back then, because yeah. I wasn't. Yeah. But at least I knew how to recognize differences in coffees. Yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, I mean today I'm a much better copper yeah. because now I can recognise defects in coffee and yeah. back then I couldn't do that. So um but uh the motivation to enter that competition was I mean there was no motivation. It was just, you know, I thought it was fun. Yeah, yeah sure. It was like playing a game and yeah. yeah. Uh but I think you know the, the reason why I stopped being involved because I have trained people afterwards to compete. Okay. Um, the best placement was probably a girl called, uh, Gunnhild, who worked for a coffee shop in Norway, and she came sixth in Seattle, Okay, I think, yeah. fifth or sixth, and then, uh, I had uh, Chris Kolbu, who worked for me in the beginning, when I opened my shop, he came, I think, ninth in Copenhagen, Yeah. Uh, and we were super happy with his performance and everything, mm. but then, um, I think just, you know, the feedback we got at the competitor's debriefing was quite demotivating. Okay. Uh, First of all, there were very few of the judges who had actually judged him who were present. And the feedback we got was not really uh, productive. Yeah. Um, And, of course, we disagreed with a lot of it. Mm. So we kind of moved on. In terms of what we believe is high quality, mm. whereas uh, the judges and the competition has kind of gone gone into a different direction, not necessarily a wrong direction. It's mm. just a, it's a different thing that we're looking for. Yeah, for sure. I think uh, especially
1: today that only becomes clearer and clearer over time. Like we we know there's a very specific style of coffee that these competition want to have, and then most. Yeah, maybe. S- also. <laughs> yeah, but, well, be, sure. Like, one can one can argue that the, you know the, the coffee. Um, they want to have. They actually don't know they want to have because they yeah. try to give, right? Because there's also a matter of what kind of coffees they're actually exposed to in competition. And mm-hmm. right now, it's a very specific type of coffee that they're getting exposed to, right? Yeah. But how was the how was the process of of, of actually starting up? Did you start Did you start roasting from day one? Um, yeah, we did. Yeah. So it was coffee shop and, and a roaster in the shop.
0: Yeah. From day one. yeah. No, I so I, when I was competing and. Uh, back in 2004, 2005, mm. I won the cup tasting thing. Uh, I was still working at Stockflitz, uh, which is a small coffee shop chain in uh, Oslo. Mm. And back then, like when I started with Stockflets in ninety eight, there was one coffee shop and two kind of old school coffee and tea stores. Mm. And they didn't have an administration, mm. so they all lived separate lives. Mm. Um, and then in 2001 we opened, me and Alex, who were running kind of two different coffee shops at the time. He was running what was called Kaffefürer, which is now Führre. Yeah. And I was running Stockfitz by the parliament. Um, and then we were asked to open another one in the courthouse. Okay. Uh, so we did that and then that became a success quite fast because it was a great location. and mm. um, They put a little, a little bit of money into the design and everything. And then we were asked to, to open a couple of other shops, uh, and also take over the old stores that you know there were a couple of old ladies running it. They were, uh, you know, getting their pensions and Mm. retiring. So in two thousand and five, we were I think, uh, administrating six or seven stores. And I was doing all the training and quality control and pro- production or product development. Yeah. But I felt I was kind of trapped in a... We were constantly needing new baristas. Mm. You know, all baristas were leaving. So I was constantly just doing the same thing over and over and over again, which was basic barista training. Yeah. So I felt that I couldn't, you know, evolve. Uh, so I decided to leave. I also worked, you know, like 16-hour days yeah. and mm. was not paid anything. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not bitter, because uh, I, I learned a lot, but it was just uh, I had to do something else. Yeah, sure. So when I won the competitions, I got a lot of opportunity to travel and do consulting. Mm. And I, So I left the Stockfords in early 2006 to mm. do consulting. But then I realized, you know, at least back then, most of the consulting was around barista competitions. Mm. And since the finals was in June, mm. after June, there was no work. Yeah. Um, so I started talking with Andreas who was then CEO of uh, solberg Hansen he's now working for the Nordic Approach yeah. um, to see if we could do something together um, I wanted to open you know didn't really know what so we had a lot of conversations and then it became a store where I could it was supposed to be a roastery and a training room or okay. where I could do consultancy yeah. and then we would also have a small bar where we could just sell Mm. coffee to show people mm. what I believe was good coffee yeah sure um, so I actually started planning that uh, in the end of 2006 like concrete plans with uh, what I needed in terms of equipment and everything yeah. and um, early 2007 I started roasting coffee at the old Provat at Solberg because yeah. I knew that roaster yeah. I had been roasting on it before so I started selling some coffee to, you know, some clients that I already knew, uh, so I could develop a blend. They knew, you know, it's not going to be perfect, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, blah, yeah, sure. So that when we opened in the uh, end of June in 2007, uh, when we had the new roaster, we just started straight away. Mm. Back then, you know, I only roasted for espresso before that. Okay. Yeah. So filtered coffee was a new thing for me. Yeah, um, yeah. And I knew it was supposed to be a little bit lighter, so we, you know... Instead of roasting it for 19 minutes, yeah, you yeah, roasting yeah, it for yeah. 18, 18
1: minutes. Yeah. <laughs> That's How do you on that on that same note? Before I forget, um, because you guys still separate espresso uh, and filter. Yeah. Um, do you have any? Do you want to have a discussion about this omni concept? Is it relevant to you or should we just skip that? No, no, no. I mean,
0: uh, it's fine
1: for people who like that.
0: Yeah. I, I prefer uh, a little bit less uh, acidity
1: in my espressos and more acidity in my filter coffees. Yeah. And that's that's the main reason why you're separating and roasting Yeah. Okay, cool. Fair enough. This is something I feel that it's a discussion that is constantly kind of coming up. And, and my answer to that as well is that I simply like my filter coffee in a different way Yeah. than the espresso. And I'm, I'm not saying you can't get... Good versions of, of either it's just yeah. not the best version in that sense, right? I just don't like to drink battery acid uh, as
0: espresso. You know, like, it's yeah. so concentrated. But I, sure. like, I was in Australia I was in, like, two years ago, yep. and I got a lot of these Ek forty three espresso shots sure. that were really long, like maybe yeah. eighty grams out. Or but yeah, they were yeah. tasting delicious. It was know. just not a beverage that I desired. Yeah. You know, sure. it was. I'm so used to filter coffee and I like that concentration yeah. and I'm also used to kind of more old school espressos that are quite short Yeah. Uh, and to have a drink in between I don't really think I need it yeah. <laughs> it's either or for me but uh, you know I'm an old man Yeah. so uh, I don't think there's anything wrong with anything as long as it tastes delicious but um, sure. I think uh, a lot of times when we're discussing both brewing and roasting uh, a lot of the problems could
1: have been solved if they, people just had better coffee yeah sure I, mean, green coffee. I think it's extremely that as well it's a, it's a whole process right and they're, they're all linked together in terms of how you should brew it as well which yeah. is part of the issue let's on that note green coffee that's, it's impossible yeah. to, to have a conversation with you without talking about farming yes. uh, without talking. you're just back from pretty and, and you know a lot of traveling now yeah I think the, for the last months right no, uh, i was in move colombia move? for two weeks working yeah. on my own farm and then uh, one and a half week in central america how much time do you spend on farms on average a year?
0: well i used to spend a lot more time on other people's farms yeah now you spend uh, it on your own yeah. yeah so now now i spend uh, probably two to two and a half months in colombia yeah. on my own farm yeah but also when i'm there i'm staying at Elias's farm that I'm buying yeah, from because sure. uh, he's my neighbor, I don't yeah. have a house on my farm, it's yeah. a two-minute walk. Yeah, yeah, sure. So, um, of course, when he's harvesting, I will be there and, you know, yeah. look at things. And, but because I've been working with Elias, Marisa, Verde, Moises, Hobnil, and Hilberto for, since, you know, 2009, 2010, mm-hmm. they're now kind of following a protocol that we have implemented over time, so I don't right. really have to be there to do the nitty-gritty stuff, Yeah. Whereas before it was more like we have to go and look at things and see how we could solve problems and mm. make the product better. So now on my trip to Central America now was basically a very short trip where I visited them, we went to the farms to see, you know, there's always new things to discuss. Mm. Uh, I'm a little bit more interested in the actual agriculture part now yep. rather yep. than yep. process. Yep. And also we have to do cupping so I can select my coffees a lot of times because uh, at least with some of them, I, ha- I kind of have the first pick and then... They can send samples to other people later. Yeah. Uh not that they're not sending samples before I'm there, but um yeah, of course. some of the coffees are specifically produced in a way or well, most of them are produced yeah. in a way that we want them to be, so yeah. they're a little bit more expensive to produce.
1: Yeah. So they tend to hold that for me and then whatever's left over they will sell it to someone else. Yeah but there, there, there's still uh, some kind of contract or agreement that you will buy a certain amount of that because we see a lot of uh, roasters now that are basically implementing also own processes on a farm level in that sense asking farmers to do a bunch of different stuff and yeah. then in the end they don't buy any of the coffee oh, you should buy if you ask you should buy if you ask right? but we have a, we
0: don't have a written contract I don't have a written contract with no anyone yeah. uh, I think you know it's for me it's, I always compare it to like a boyfriend girlfriend or marriage mm-hmm. thing. Like if you don't want to be together, yeah. then a binding contract shouldn't keep you together for sure. So um, for me, it's important to make myself interesting mm. to be uh, for them for them to be a partner yeah, sure. and vice versa. Mm. Um, but um, they know, like, we communicate throughout the year. So it's mm-hmm. not a, it's not rocket science. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I will communicate approximately how many bags that I'm going to buy. Mm-hmm. If, you know, there's some exceptional stuff, I'll probably buy a little bit more. Uh, so they know, um, you know, they don't... If I say I need 100 bags from you, Moises, like mm-hmm. Moises Herrera, Moisabel Cabero, he will maybe produce 300 bags yeah. of the quality that I want. Yeah, So I can choose... Sure. but I didn't ask him to produce three other bags yeah. but he prefers to do that because he wants to make me happy yeah, yeah. Okay. and also he's able to sell the 200 other bags for a good price yes with Elias it's a little different so he, he can produce maybe <coughs> three to 400 bags in the main harvest mm. uh, but the first pickings are normally not tasting so great and also the last pickings and not because the quality necessarily is worse it's just it's more difficult to pick yeah uh, and also difficult to get pickers so um, I tell him you know the, the first start of the harvest or the first round of picking and the last don't bother processing them in an expensive way because yeah. I'm most likely not going to buy it for yeah, a high or, price yeah. and he's not able to sell it for a high price either okay. uh, there's just not enough buyers around mm-hmm. um, so we he then produces maybe 200 bags and then I'll buy 100 and then there's some leftovers that Nordic Approach picks up some other clients picks up mm-hmm. so he's able to sell maybe
1: 200 bags yeah looking at your your own kind of farm project was it what was the route to that was it important for you to start a farm was (laughs) that that a new hobby like how did you end up starting a farm it's kind of a this childish
0: uh, dream that like when you go to a car uh, show and you see a ferrari and you think i want one of those it's kind of uh, the same thing but um um it has become a totally different thing than it was. Uh, in the beginning, I just wanted, you know, half a hectare yep. to plant some coffee, fertilize with the, you know, whatever. I didn't care about that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to test, you know, maybe in Colombia, if we take off the Mitaka harvest, which is, yes. you know, maybe 20% and it's in November. If you we, if we just strip that off and let the main harvest get better, you know, energy into yeah. the maybe the coffee is better. Yeah. All these kind of stupid yeah. ideas. Maybe if we grow more shade and, and then it became, uh, then Elias offered me to buy seven hectares instead of one, which I was asking. Okay. And then I agreed to that. And then, uh, I started kind of reading about, you know, farming techniques. I knew I kind of wanted to test organic stuff, maybe biodynamic. Mm. The more I learned about it, uh, less kind of, uh, sense it made, <laughs> Because I couldn't really understand uh, why the organic was better. Um, Everyone said, you know, they have lower yields. The cost is much higher. Uh, You have to buy these products that they have to ship from Spain to Colombia. And I I just couldn't understand it. Like, why can't I just use something in Colombia? And then uh, I got the tip to check out uh, Dr. Elaine Ingham's work from yeah. uh, Ed Bourgeois. I'm not sure if I pronounce his name correctly, but um, so I checked out, uh, you know, soil biology and biological farming techniques, and that made all the sense in the world to me. So mm. that's why I started that project. Um, and of course, when you learn a new thing and you believe everything you hear mm. and you think it's easy, mm. I still believe everything uh, Elaine is preaching. Sure. but I've learned that it's not so easy <laughs> but uh, um, you know if you asked me two three years ago I would say you know in five years we're gonna set up a school on my farm I'm gonna teach all the farms in Colombia how to do this because yeah. this is so much better than conventional sure. farming yeah. today uh, I will say give me another ten years and then I'll do it because yeah, uh, sure. we need to figure out you know one thing is theory and what works in a farm that produces uh, you know, apples or potatoes in North America. Another thing is in a tropical system, producing coffee that is not really a native plant in Colombia, uh, in areas where it's not supposed to be, you know. So, uh, but now it's getting getting there. But, you know, in the beginning it was just the arrogant prick in me that said, you know, I can do this better. I know I can make better coffee. Uh, But I would need to invest a lot of money in it. Today, I see farmers investing a lot of money in it, and it's not necessarily, not necessarily raising the quality as much as they want it. Yeah. Um, because it's mainly investments focused on processing equipment, storage, yeah. and so on, which is really important. But um, for me, the future is to invest in better agricultural practices. That's how you get the coffee better. Yeah. Processing is, you know fairly easy to learn and invest in and, and make well uh, actually well,
1: growing part is the most difficult part yeah for sure yeah, yeah. fair enough. how is the will it be like you always have your work kind of for yourself in Colombia you will be for, for quite some time are you planning any other farm projects in any country kind of <laughs> or, or one farm at a time or I would love to have a farm in Kenya yeah to do organic in Kenya yeah
0: because I love canning coffees and because no one as far as I know are doing any significant organic stuff down there? Yeah, sure. So, um would love to prove uh, everyone in Kenya wrong that you, it is possible to grow coffee without chemicals. Because mm-hmm. if you ask uh, anyone in the cooperative or farmer now, they oh, no, that's not possible. We yeah. have lepros, we have a uh, coffee bear disease, you know, yeah, they yeah, have sure, all sure. these kind of problems. Yeah. But uh, thats uh, I believe those problems come from the practices that they are implementing. Which is over time it has, that is harming the,
1: the yeah. ecosystem yeah, for sure how is the like if we look on a, um, on, a on a broader scale look at especially coffee uh, I hate well let's not use that term it's a bad term but like coffee in general right where is um, where is coffee heading do you like where coffee is heading <laughs> and what is what is to both both as a, uh, as, as a as a person individual you and the company um uh, how are you guys going to be a part of this in the future?
0: I think uh, coffee is uh, developing really fast okay. and it's really difficult to say where it's heading. But uh, I think the positive note is that more people are drinking coffee. Yeah, sure. Uh, it's positive As you know, for, for many problem. reasons, but, um, you know, uh, there's uh, all these kind of social problems that are... Uh, we're better off with coffee than, for instance, alcohol or, you know, sodas or something yeah, like that, sure. health issues. Yeah. Um, but also with the farmers, uh, because it's... The supply is not... Oh, pro- hopefully, in the future, not growing as fast as the consumption. Yeah. So that means the prices will have to go up, because sure. uh, if it's not... Yes, thank you. Sorry. coffee. <laughs> if it's not... Um, if we're not uh, changing the way we buy coffee, then uh, there won't be coffee, mm-hmm. that's for sure. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm really worried about uh, the specialty industry, if we can call it that. I don't really like that word, because mm-hmm. it doesn't define anything. But um, yeah. roasters who start up uh, and wanting to buy quality coffee don't realize that price and quality is related. Yeah. So, we're on a cupping event now where there's a lot of buyers, Yeah. and if, I'm pretty sure if we ask every single person here, they want the best possible coffee, but they want to pay as little as possible, yeah, sure. as long as it's fair for the farmer. Yeah, yeah. But uh, what's fair for the farmer? I mean, we're we're not even talking with the farmer about yeah. that. So, I think we need to realize that... Uh, if you want quality coffee, you, you have to pay a lot more for it yeah. if you want to have it in the future. Yeah, yeah sure.
1: Because uh, at the moment we're just exploiting the farmers. Yeah. Yeah. And that's something that we can see also, I'm, I'm not, not saying we're trying to do the same thing, but um, interestingly for like the good groceries, we have a big difference in terms of selling price, right? So how much we sell roasted coffee for? I believe it's, it's very important for us to sell expensive or or at least more expensive coffee than done on average now Mm -hmm. too. both kind of hedge for the future in that sense because the prices are going to go up and we are going to have to pay more right but at the same time we see that the industry price is kind of doing the opposite right right? so the competitions are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper which is basically just closing down the margin and in the end of the day the one that is going to make the least amount of money will be the farmer right yeah which is yeah which that's the case even today right yeah uh, so that, that's what I see the most troubling part is that we, we sell coffee way too... Um, we, we buy too cheap but we also sell way too cheap. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure.
0: And I think uh, we're fooling the consumers. Yeah. We're, you're shooting yourself in the foot if you're buying, you know, a cheap Brazil for your blends yeah. and claiming to be selling specialty coffee. Yeah. Um, the consumer isn't able to taste uh, the difference if we're all serving them average coffees sure so uh, if you want to be in the high quality game you have to really get the best coffees Mm. and I I, it's not easy like a very good example is that uh, I was uh, helping Diego the Colombian Barista Champion Diego Campos he was uh, competing uh, I think it was three years ago in Colombia Mm. and uh, since he was working with me on my farm to translate for me and you know also helping out on the farm Mm. We were talking a lot about his routine and, you know, his focus. But that year he was so focused on trying to find the best competition coffee. So he traveled all over Colombia for for a year, a whole year, to find a 90-point coffee. And he still didn't find it. In Colombia. The third biggest producer in the world. Crazy. And uh, so he ended up not winning the Colombian Barista Championship. Because, you know, he had spent no time on his routine or anything. He had spent all this time looking for a coffee. So the next year, I told him, you know, you've spent many months on Finca Tamala, mm. working on the coffee with Elias. You know everything, everything about this coffee. Yeah. Why don't you just take an average good coffee from his farm mm. and present it in a really good way? Mm. And he did, and then he won the Colombian championship. Yeah. And of course, he didn't do so well in the WBC, but at least he came to the WBC. Yeah, of course he so I think, you know, it's not about uh, having uh, 90 point coffees, because mm. they rarely exist. Yeah. It's about having a, a really good coffee mm. uh, that is sweet, that is clean, can mm. have some fruit flavor and so on. But don't fool the customer, you know, with these kind of cheap blends, I mean, then you're in a different bowl game. And yeah. if you want to be in that bowl game, fine, but don't, yeah. you know, don't claim to be selling the best coffee in the world.
1: Which everyone is doing, even the big players. For <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, we see it both on, on the kind of land market and we see it now with this so-called competition coffees that people sell as part yeah. of their kind of repertoire as well. And they, they you know put a score ninety four on the on the bag and yeah. I think I scored uh well to be fair I scored, I scored these three people, uh, three coffees during my, my time in coffee over ninety. I believe two of them were from you Uh geishers were from the uh, some kind of geisha at least. That yeah. was a few years ago now. Yeah.
0: But that was very, very good. I just uh, cut uh, three 90-point coffees in Honduras. Okay, well. Uh, two from Moises and one from uh, Hobney. Okay, awesome. Mm-hmm. Is that coffee we will see uh, in <laughs> in the future? Two of them we will see this year. Okay, awesome. Um, nice. One of them is not in production yet, nice. but uh, there was a um, SL28 from Las uh, Ken and Variety also from. Okay, it's, it's that, is that a similar? Uh, it,
1: it, it, we should mention here that that uh, Tim also have, uh, or the Noma restaurant company has has a Edible coffee since like four yes. and they served this on twenty. No. Yeah, After, from so last year's there. crop. Yeah, 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 okay, that's last year's crop. So we have one bag
0: that we reserved for their
1: reopening. Okay.
0: Um, this year, we'll probably get two or three bags of oh, the 28. Sure. Uh, and it's so. tasting phenomenal this year. Yeah. I just tasted the first picking, and the later yeah. picking is always better. Always better. Yeah, sure. And then it uh, was the Kenyan variety from Moises yeah. in Marcala, which is south, which was incredible. Mm-hmm. And then his um, Geisha. So, the Geisha that we have this year from, uh, or from last year's crop, yeah. from the Caballeros, is a mix of all the Geisha that they had. Yeah. Uh, which was kind of a dumb thing to do, because... Uh, it doesn't taste phenomenal yeah sure they had separated some you know lots that they competed with and did well with but so on so this year Moises uh, I talked to Moises before the harvest and we decided he was going to because it's not a lot of coffee so that's why he blended it last year this year he, he picked coffee and kept every picking separate yeah and he has geisha planted on various farms yeah so then uh, when I was there just two weeks ago, we cut through all the pickings and uh, there were some lots that were, you know, phenomenal mm-hmm. uh, and some were really average, mm-hmm. you know, it was ranging from 84 points to 93. Yeah. Um, uh, so, of course, we were able to pick out the best ones and make a lot from that. Yes, yeah. it's very small amounts. The funny thing is that uh, some of the really lower scoring ones and some of the higher scoring ones were mm-hmm. coming from the same trees from the same log okay. it's just two different pickings ah. so you know we don't really understand why but uh, as in as early or late then or yeah okay sure it's so very very uh, but his harvest is much more concentrated so it's yeah. not like with Hobnil in North of Honduras he starts picking in January and yeah. finishes in June yeah. yeah but Moises is like January February that's it yeah, okay. yeah. so uh, it was really interesting to taste and I, I mean some of the lots were just not tasting floral and citric at all. They were just like almost nutty and you know yeah. quite gland And the other ones were phenomenal.
1: Yeah. And how much do you think? Because we had an interesting discussion about this uh, yesterday as well, drinking Johhnn Kute Yeah. Uh, and I think you know, again we're at this coffee event at Nordic Approach at the moment, and it's so much stress to get coffee and to evaluate coffee based on what it's tasting right here, right now, yeah. which is basically just pre-ship samples of, of, of various kinds. A lot of them very, very early pickings. Yeah, Like Kenyan coffee, we're talking, you know, December-ish, which most of the time is not very tasty, right? Um, and do you feel like how, because one of the things that stands out with, with you guys as a roastery is the uniformity in, in green coffee, Suppliers like far more processing stations over the years,' have yeah, been <laughs> extremely consistent,
0: yeah, but we work with the same but four producers in, in Central and South America, yeah uh, in, because I, I realized you know i don't want to travel all the time, yeah, sure, um, so it's better that I travel focus on less producers, yeah, but help them get seeds yeah. and from other producers in the area so they can produce different types of coffees, sure. Yeah. So I'd rather buy, you know, four coffees from one guy than one coffee from four guys. Mm. Um, it's easier to do quality control on the farms when you do it like that. Yeah. Uh, and it's just easier. I'm a lazy guy, so it's easier in general. In Kenya and Ethiopia, it's really difficult, but we started buying uh, coffee from Henkuta through Traboka, actually. Okay. And then uh, I went to Ethiopia and visited the Sidamo Cooperative Union. Uh, when I funded Nordic Approach with Noah Morton mm. and he offered to sell some to Nordic mm. so we bought some through that and then haven't been buying every year since uh, and I mean it's consistently been quite good there's ups mm. and downs but it's consistently great you know it doesn't change administration overnight mm. so yeah, sure. and in Kenya as well we have kind of focused on or at least tried to buy from few cooperatives yeah. uh, year after year but it's very, very difficult. It's, it's easier now that I know a little bit more the exporters around yeah. and so on, but it was a little bit more difficult before for me because I was much smaller too. Yeah, of course. But uh, like with Cops of Kisio, we've been buying that for many years. I was actually their first buyer that ever went there. Um, just because I was curious, someone had mentioned to me that, you know, we're planting coffee in the West now. Yeah, in a different part uh, of the country. Yeah. But it, it's always been there. Yep. It's just nobody has paid attention to yeah. it. And it's, it's a two for, for those of you that
1: don't know like most of the coffees come from the central regions of Kenya, right? And yeah. this is, it is probably the best kind of coffee. I don't know. It, it's, it's a, it's a distinctly different kind of coffee as well in that sense. So it's, it's you know, it's either you love it or, or you don't maybe, but I still hold it as one of the better ones. I think that the Peaberry you had early last year yeah, that was, was good. like <laughs> amazing. <That> was <laughs> fucking amazing. I'm a, yeah. I bought some really good
0: lots this year as well. Yeah. Um, uh, I cupped through, uh, I think, four or five lots, and uh, one of them was really good. Yeah. So, with Canon Cooperatives, all the washing stations produce maybe, you know, let's say they produce, uh, you know, 10 lots of really high-quality coffee yeah. in a season, maybe even 20. Yeah. And then, out of that, they will you will get big beans, small beans, double so A's, A, B, Peaberry, and so on. Mm. And not all of these lots are great, so you know we can see the same coffee, different roaster, same name on the cooperative and everything, but it will taste very different mm. Mm. Um, and uh, you know the, the the most kind of well trained cooperatives are more consistent, batch to batch,, yeah. uh, but you see that the kind of smaller cooperatives that might have capacity problems during harvest because they want you know as much cherry as possible. Mm. Mm and then they might buy too much mm. and don't have drying capacity they don't have you know fermentation tanks enough mm. so they're not able to produce consistently so with cups of kiesel that was definitely the case in the beginning yeah and uh, now they have uh, improved their infrastructure a little bit we also mm. set up drying tables there yeah and um so that you know the first years you were lucky if you got a, you know a lot of coffee that tasted good yeah. now we can at least select from several lots yeah 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 uh, it's interesting and it's also about you know you don't have to buy from the same cooperative in Kenya area. they sell a lot of coffee yeah. and we're like a drop in the sea but yeah, sure. you know like with Karagoto they do recognize me when I come back they yeah, know who I am yeah. uh, I I don't really think that they are going around thinking about you know this year we're going to produce this for Tim I don't think so No. but um, I think there's a commitment from my side that i, I want to support
1: them yeah uh, i just need to figure out a better way to do it yeah and i think that's something i hear is, is a similar kind of thought process as uh, i heard a uh, topic with, with Colin at Three Fe last week and then mm. he also talked a lot about uh from a entrepreneurial business owner roaster perspective whatever you call it and um, the the importance of, of kind of uh, isolate and focus on processes, and not trying to be everywhere, mm. but trying to do what you do really, really well. And it seems like that's kind of the essence of what you're trying to do in, in every single aspect, whether that is, is farming, grocery, coffee shop, right? Mm. Um, and you have been doing, uh, you know, a bunch of a lot of different things. And as as you mentioned as well, you, you were one of the the, the founders of the Nordic Approach as well. And uh, how, you know, a lot of people would be happy with just a coffee shop. Yeah. Or history, right. You you seem to keep on pushing more stuff all of the time. You know. Yeah. And where where does that come from? Where will that take you in the future? If you if you get to decide that, like, what's the in in, in the, you know the, the best scenario of, <laughs> of you know ten years? Where are you? Where do you want to be? So uh,
0: I try not to do stuff that is not relevant to my business anymore. Like uh, yeah. I get offers to do a lot of things, yeah. but I
1: don't have time what, what is your not to drop but what, what is your core business like what is your how would you define that to serve good coffee serve yeah, coffee yeah. yeah that's what we do
0: yeah uh, if I don't serve good coffee we don't sell coffee so that I can roast yeah and so on so sure. uh, that's that's our main business and of course I run my company yeah but uh, I do get a lot of really tempting offers to you know, go here and do this and do lectures and so on and I, I want to do it. Mm. It's just uh, I realized last year with all the travels and everything, I'm married now. So I have a wife mm. that I also have to, you know, at least spend a little bit of time with. Sure, yeah, of course. Weekends, yeah. I try not to work too much anymore because yeah. I've done that for, you know, 20 years. Yeah. Um, so then I realized, you know, during a year I only had like 70 work days yeah. in Norway, yeah. which is not oh, enough. No. So I always felt stressed and, you know, behind. Of course. So uh, I'm trying to only focus yeah. on does it benefit my business, Mm. yes or no? That's always the question I ask now, if I'm getting asked, you know, to do stuff. Mm. Or can it benefit from that I'm learning something so that it will develop my business, you know? So I might go to, you know, some interesting stuff just to get inspiration. Sure. But it has to benefit the business. But the drive from doing all this kind of work comes down to when I was um, working as a barista at Stockford's Lille and uh, I was really focusing on barista technique, you know, equipment, grinders, we were testing a lot of equipment, and, and I was so frustrated because I couldn't find the reason why one day the espresso tasted amazing, yeah. and the other day, the same coffee tasted awful. Sure, And the, this was a quite, kind of the most dramatic thing that I discovered, but... Back then the roasters would be water quenching the coffee yeah. in the roaster yeah. that means you spray coffee on the actual coffee before you take it out to cool it down yeah. and this caused the coffee to degas really really fast mm-hmm. um, and uh, so we would get the coffee t- twice a week yeah. delivered in paper bags of course because yeah. nothing says fresh like paper bags uh, I would of course use the coffee straight away tasted mm-hmm. great two yeah. days later there was no crema Completely tasted glass. sour yeah was terrible and then I started having a dialogue with the roasters there were two old men they were really grumpy didn't want you know they didn't know anything about Mm. this and they didn't want to have questions because they couldn't answer of course Mm -hmm. they were sweet guys you know but not for this kind of purpose so uh, I started complaining you know they would send when we got fresh coffee it would taste awful and I I knew that it wasn't fresh Mm -hmm. so then I started asking about roast dates Mm -hmm. and they would not give it to me Okay. And that led me to, you know, okay, i got to go up there and start roasting my own coffee. Mm. And then when I started roasting my own coffee, uh, after, you know, maybe too long, but I started realizing, you know, the green coffee isn't good enough. Yeah. I realized that when I opened my own company, yeah. I bought a couple of excellent slots. Uh, and when we started roasting them, in the beginning they were really fruity, and after, you know, a month they would taste like wood yeah of course the coffee was old (laughs) so then that led me to go to the farms and like I I can't buy coffee for a year and then after two months it's old so I had to start to understand what happens at the farm Mm. because some coffees were staying fresh for a long time others weren't so that led me to starting to work with the farmers and you know the more you learn about that the more you want to kind of move away from the conventional farming at least me Mm. Uh, and kind of improve the quality in the soil and in the trees because we have worked so much with the process mm. without necessarily raising the
1: quality mm. by that many points. How does that work? Now, I know we're we're getting off topic here, but this is interesting, so let's let's keep on it. Um, kind of cross processing between farms and origins, right? Because we're talking about processing, we're talking about the you know how the quality of, of a coffee, or the lifespan of a coffee differs depending on processing. Uh, I think a lot of people would agree that Kenyan coffees in general holds up amazingly well due to a very very good process, uh, to some extent. Mm-hmm. Or at the open as well. Is there can you take things from Kenya and put that in Honduras or Colombia and that will improve the coffee in the same kind of way, or are the the original uh, the plant or the source itself too different for you to to apply the same processes?
0: No, so we. I mean, I've been implementing. African processing techniques yeah. on all the farms that I work with yeah. um, and testing different techniques yeah. to see the impact on shelf life because yeah. I don't really care uh, about the, the kind of added fruit, fruit flavors you get from you know, naturals and honey process yeah. and prolonged fermentation and yeah. anaerobic fermentation yeah. I personally don't like those flavors because yeah. because the flavor is more or less the same sure. whether it's in Brazil or Ethiopia yeah. or Colombia yeah. So I just want a clean, sweet coffee. Yeah. That's what I want. And I want it to stay clean and sweet sure. for a long time. Yeah. Um, of course, if the coffee has fruit flavor or not, for me that's more depending on the growing conditions and the variety, mm. more so than the process. Mm. Of course, you can tweak the fruitiness a little bit with some fermentation and so on, but it's a very thin line for me at least where yeah. it becomes too much pulpy flavors. Sure. I just don't like that. Yeah. Um, I guess I've smelled too many, many of those mountains of pulp behind the washing station <laughs> yeah. to not uh, like it. Yeah. So, we've done, done a lot of testing, especially with the washing and soaking yep. and drying, and then, of course, storing in grain pro bags compared to the kind of normal nylon bags, mm. so airtight bags. Mm. And uh, yeah, for sure the coffee stays fresh for a long time. Like when I started buying from Honduras, everyone told me, you know, Honduran coffee fades fast, yeah. but the, the beans doesn't know where it's grown, sure. like whether it's El Salvador or Honduras yeah. or Kenya. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, we could notice that some farms, it was great and other farms were not. And yeah. then I realized it was the drying times yeah. and the temperatures. Yeah. Had a huge impact. So now we're, we're basically shade drying all the coffees, yep. which means we're putting them on some kind of elevated bed or a kind of a plastic patio, yep. but with shade nuts um, so that the drying times are between 14 to 30 days, depending on the farm. And uh, the reason why you can't just take uh, a Kenyan process and put it in Colombia. Is obviously it rains a lot more in Colombia Definitely it's a different climate yeah. so you need to build different dryers and mm-hmm. so on um, but you can implement the same theories behind the techniques yeah and kind of uh, replicate drying times and replicate washing times and fermentation mm-hmm. times to get it to taste clean sweet mm-hmm. and fresh for a long time yeah. and it works like uh, the only coffee that we have at the moment that is has some signs of starting to get you know faded is. Nasimento coffee that mm. is harvested a year ago. Yeah. Um, it's still tasting really good, but you, if you compare it to some of the other coffees that we have that are uh, vacuum packed, yeah. then you can notice. But yeah, um, yeah. that's the only coffee that wasn't vacuum packed last year except Hunkuta and this. Mm. And uh, this year we will vacuum pack it. So.
1: Even Hunkuta? Uh, no, no, the okay. yeah. Uh, cool. We, again, we, we started a bit off, but back to my original yeah. question. Everything is soft. Kind of, yeah, sure. That's that's how we do it here. Like We are trying to keep it interesting. But again, future, 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 future. Where, where are you going? What do you want to do? What is, what is left to you to do? You have a coffee farm. You started a green coffee company. You have a roastery. Uh, you have a coffee shop. Uh, you have probably the strongest brand, and in, especially in coffee. Uh, and that doesn't you know. help, you know. <laughs> it doesn't <laughs> upsell smell, no, but... You know, yeah, it's, it's The, the uh, problem with that is that uh, nobody in specialty
0: coffee buys coffee. Mm. Uh, because most, at least, you know, internationally, most of the people who go to fairs and stuff are either roasters or going to be roasters. Yeah, yeah sure. Or equipment uh, manufacturers yeah, yeah. or... So, it's not like if you have a very strong brand that you're going to sell a lot, actually. Yeah. We're still quite small. We're roasting about 40 metric tons a year, which is yeah. about 650 bags of coffee. Yeah. And that's after 10 years. Yeah. Um, but um, where I'm heading is probably my first goal now is to produce more than four coffee cherries on my farm. Mm. Last year, I produced one. Yeah. yeah. this year, I'm producing four, if yeah. they survive. yeah, yeah. And to get my farm up and running, so that's going to take a lot of my time in the next five to ten years, mm-hmm. and the goal there is to succeed with the biological techniques that we're doing yeah. do more and also better coffee yeah um, and when we succeed, not if but when yeah we will I will try to at least make a training center there for local farmers, but also internationally if farmers wants to come and mm-hmm. learn, we will be happy to. To do that, so I will have to train people, and you know, so mm-hmm. that's going to take a lot of time, and uh, of course, getting more delicious coffee mm. uh, for my store. Mm. We are, you know, every year we're getting more and more delicious coffees. The problem uh, with working the way I do is that I'm only working with the same producers every year. Yeah. So for me to be on this cupping event with Norik approach is almost. Uh, not it's not so productive for me I yeah, buy sure. Ethiopian coffees through Nordic yeah. yeah. that's it but uh, it's not like I can personally I, I don't want to go and just buy the best coffees that I can find on this cupping yeah. just to have it that yeah. doesn't give me pleasure Yeah. I find pleasure in following a development knowing where the coffee was grown yeah. knowing how it was produced mm. that gives me pleasure it mm-hmm. doesn't need to be a very fruity coffee or whatever mm. as long as I can taste and kind of emotionally taste yeah, the I'm Sure. Effort that's behind so uh, we started uh, i think now five years ago to plant new varieties with different farms Mm. that we buy from and we started to get some of it uh, two years ago from tamala we got some sl28 some Mm. tipica also last year we started getting sl28 from um, hobnib in uh, honduras uh this year I'm getting half a bag of a Kenyan yeah, okay. variety at, uh, we don't really know what variety it is, but we know it's okay. Kenyan, okay. they just call it Kenya in the area, Yeah. which is tasting really good, so I'm getting a little bit of that from Moises. Uh, next year probably Hilberto will sell me some Sudanderme, some other stuff. Yeah, okay. So you know, but this work started five years ago. Yeah. Now we're seeing a production, because yeah. we started with a handful of seeds. Yeah it takes time to develop yes. so have you have
1: you always been uh, it sounds like you're an incredibly uh, patient person have you have you always been there? yes yeah. in many terms but in other terms no <laughs> okay,
0: sure. if I want stuff done now you know yeah. okay. which is uh, it's a little bit of both because the uh, reason why we in the past have you know given money to farmers to build dryers and stuff is yeah. because I don't have the patience to wait for them to sure. do that in three years yeah. I want it to be done now yeah Whereas in other type of stuff, like developing quality takes time. And uh, I know that in the future, I would like to have more diversity and better coffees. Mm. And uh, I know that they can produce better coffees mm. just with other varieties. So that's why we started that work a long time ago. And uh, at Tamama, probably in two or three years, we're going to have like 13 or 14 different varieties yeah. that we can taste. Yeah. Some of them we'll be producing maybe two or three bags. Yeah. And then we'll take the best stuff and plant more mm. and then we'll have to wait another three years before we have production. There's a thing that says it's, it's a long process. It's going to yeah. be nice, right? But you know, then I don't have to come to these cupping events and have, you know, pointy elbows and say, you know, I'll pay $20, I'll pay $30 so uh, I don't have to play that
1: game which is much better for me I'm a lazy yeah. guy <laughs> I'm not sure if people would agree with the fact that you're a lazy guy but I think that's actually a, it's a great place to, to kind of wrap up I think yeah, we've got a good insight in, in, in what you have done uh, perhaps why you have done it, and what you're going to be, be up for next which is really interesting and uh, I think we're all expecting uh, well the best tasting coffee in the world coming from, from Tim because that's Hopefully. what we can see yeah. yeah cool best of luck with that thank you from us here at april thank you for listening if you enjoyed this podcast please share with your friends family and colleagues thank you